everyone, I'm Ryan Nobles. I'm Rebecca Berg. And I'm Harry Anton. And this is The Forecast with Harry Anton. And welcome to the podcast, everyone. We're so close to Election Day. It is like staring us Thank right you, in God. the face. <laughs> Only a week until the 2020 election cycle, guys. Oh, Thank <laughs> That's God. Another thing to look forward to. Uh, so glad you decided to join us. Sorry I missed you last week. I was uh, in Delaware while you guys were taping the podcast And we yesterday. missed you. Yes, so welcome well, back. Right. Delaware's a beautiful state, though. Worst places to be. We have a busy show. I mean, we should have a busy show this close to the election, and we certainly do today. On the agenda, we're going to dive into three House races and a Senate race, all of them in the Midwest because the Midwest is wonderful. Then we're going to head back to Florida, but this time to talk about the governor's race there, which is so fascinating. And then finally, we'll have trivia. And also, we have a listener question today, which we're very excited about. But first, let's get to the forecast. Harry, what is the latest with less than a week to go before the election? I've been told to take it a little slower to go through this, so let's all enjoy the forecast for what it is. (laughs) Kumbaya. Okay. Kumbaya. Kumbaya, my lord. So in the House, I mean, look, it's the same story that we've generally had, and that is Democrats are favored to take control. Right now, the most likely scenario is that Democrats win 226 seats. That would leave Republicans with just 209. Of course, you need 218 to control the body. But there is a margin of error, as we always discuss, right? Uh, We have the worst case for the Democrats is they win only 203 seats. That's quite unlikely. The best case scenario is they win 262. One thing that I'll point out with that that I think has been consistent throughout this campaign is normally we talk about margins of error, right, and we say plus or minus X number of seats or X percentage points. Here, in fact, that's not the case. The Democratic ceiling is much higher than the Democratic floor is low. That is, there is much more upside for them than downside. Mm -hmm. And that could happen if, say, the Democrats sweep a lot of these close races or more than that, there are a lot of these seats in which the Democrats maybe have, you know, if we were to put a probability on it, you know, maybe a 10 percent chance of winning. Maybe a number of those, many more than we think, might fall by the wayside. I think Pete King in New York second, for example. Senate, same story as normal. That is, Republicans are more than likely going to maintain control of that body. We have them favored at the end of this election cycle to control 52 seats. That's one more than they control right now, which is only 51. Democrats will end up at 48 seats. And then the low end, high end Democrats could potentially win control of the body with as many as 52 seats, so that's quite unlikely. Or at the worst end, what we could see for Democrats is that Republicans have 56 seats to the Democrats only having 44 seats. You could imagine that occurring if, say, the Republicans were to sweep all the close elections and then maybe win one or two seats like a Montana, which right now we think the Democrats are favored in, although we're not discussing that race on this particular podcast. But it's close enough. So if Republicans had a really good night, you could imagine uh, John Tester falling in Montana, even though it's not a most likely scenario. So it really continues to be a tale of two election cycles here with the House and the Senate. That's right. Charles Rebecca Dickens. Um, <laughs> that, that is what many people call me. Uh, you've been referred to as that before. You know, um, yeah, it really will be. And that's going to be something that's very interesting after the elections to see how the election is spun by both sides. I think, you know, we'll say Democrats, say, oh, we had a really good night in the House. And man, we were really able to hold Republican gains in the Senate despite so many races taking place in states that Donald Trump won. We were able to keep our losses to a minimum. Both of those sides will play the spin game, how the media exactly examines it. I think there's going to be a little bit for everybody. But at the end of the day, what you'll see is the Donald Trump train will be stopped a little bit in terms of stopping legislation if our most likely scenario comes through. But he'll still be able to confirm the judges. They'll still be able to confirm the cabinet officials. And so... 
Donald Trump will claim, as he always did, that he's winning. Well, then the White House already starting to set expectations. Kellyanne Conway saying uh, this week that unless it's like Obama losses uh, in his first term after being elected, then that's a victory for them, basically. Right. I think this is so funky and funny, right? Because if you were, in fact, to look at the House popular vote, we actually right now believe that the Republicans will lose the House popular vote by a greater margin. That is, they'll face a worse deficit than the Democrats did in the 2010 midterms. It's just how that's translated into seats right. is a much different because equation. Because the way districts are carved. Yeah. Right. The, the way the districts are carved, the way, you know, that Democrats tend to coalesce themselves in urban areas. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the seat loss is one thing, and obviously seats are what matter at the end of the day for governing. But in terms of understanding where the electorate is, in fact, this might be a more negative electorate for Democrats for Republicans, excuse mm-hmm. me, than it was for Democrats in 2010. All right, so that's uh, setting the stage for us with the forecast a week before uh, the polls open. Well, actually, uh, many, a lot of voting already taking place across the country with the early voting and absentee. Harry, thank you for that. Thank you. On the subject of polling and methodology, we actually got a great question a couple of weeks ago, and we're going to talk about it now on today's episode. It's from Mason uh, from Illinois. I believe Mason, our number one fan in Illinois, Mm. Wow, and I, we have so many. It's true. In it's Illinois. like there's a plethora of fans. He's yes. already, I, I believe he's the the chair of our uh, fan club. There did give us a five star review on That's Apple Podcasts. So he's been listening to you, Harry. He knows none only of that far star. Nothing crap. of that. So this is Mason's question: How do polls underrepresent minorities and young people in their samples? And is there a shift between polling from recent years and the actual results toward Democrats? Harry, how would you uh, answer that question from Mason? Yeah, so I would definitely say that if you were to take just a random sample and you were to call people up and see what percentage of them actually picked up the phone and then responded to your poll, you would see that polling on the whole would underrepresent young people. It would underrepresent minorities. That's for a slew of reasons, not the least of which is that they tend to be in a cell phone only population and people are much less likely to answer their cell phone than they are to answer their landline. Also, younger people have places to be you know, and people to talk to. Some older people perhaps are a little bit more lonely and want to pick up the phone and talk with a stranger. But either way, yes, it is true that both of those occur. But if you're a good pollster, you will wait up to match as best as you can the sample to what you actually expect the voting population to be. Mm -hmm. Now, that's not perfect, right? Because especially if you get only these very small sample sizes and then you're weighting them up, individual respondents could get a lot more weight in the sample than you right. might necessarily want. So one of the interesting things to watch during this you know, New York Times-Siena College polling experiment is they'll go specifically, they have the voter file and they'll have a pretty good idea of, okay, this person we believe is an African-American or this person we believe is a younger person, so we're going to try and call them over and over and over and over and over again, these callbacks, right? Mm-hmm. Callbacks are very important. That's why they are a higher quality pollster than, say, those people who just dial in automatically and you're saying, you know, you don't know what you're necessarily going to get. And then if you only do one call, you may end up with a sample size that's far too old and far too white. Mm -hmm. And then you're weighting up these small percentages of minority younger voters. Um, That being said, it's very fascinating to see that, in fact, the polls on the whole, this weighting up has tended to work. That is, we have not actually seen a bias in the polls That is, the polls have not been overly Democratic or overly Republican on average over the last few cycles. So, yes, the polls underestimated Republicans in 2016 and 2014, but they underestimated Democrats in 2012. And then between 2017 and 2018, on the whole, in the special elections and the governor's races and down in Alabama, on average, they've been perhaps a point or two 
more favorable towards the Republicans than the result actually ended up being. But it tends to be random. So pollsters have done a pretty good job of controlling the bias. I, I just wonder if you're going to so heavily weigh the response from one young person or one person from a minority group. Isn't there the chance then that you're not uh, taking into account the diversity within that subset? Absolutely. And that's why, you know, you, you know, I say one or two. Normally, you know, it might be 50 instead of 100 or right, whatever right, it is. Right. But we did, in fact, see back in 2016 during the presidential cycle, there was this USC LA Times poll, right? And it seemed to have very favorable responses for Republicans among young African-Americans. Mm-hmm. Hmm. And the reason was it was, I believe, that one African-American, young African-American respondent, actually from Illinois, I think, <laughs> who was very Republican. And when he came into the sample, it was essentially this thing where they bring in people into the sample, and then they get a day or two off, and then they come right. back into the sample. Whenever this young respondent ever came in, the young African-American vote for the um, Republican candidate, Donald Trump, would all of a sudden right, skyrocket right, right, because yeah. this guy was getting weighted so much. Right. So that's so the funny. that's the danger of having, you know, too few respondents in a specific subgroup that's actually quite important is because they'll get weighted up a lot. And if they're unrepresentative of the group, then it can throw the entire group's uh, cross tab off and then throw the entire sample off. And this is why we're seeing a lot of polling outlets try email polling, try online polling. And you, I think, have some thoughts, Harry, on how successful those methods yeah, I, have been. Right. I, I think it's, it's very important that we continue to try and diversify and to try and find new ways that we can potentially poll that can take into account the shifting electorates, not just in how they're responding to polls, but also taking into account how much these polls actually cost, right? Here at CNN, for example, we do live interview polls, we call cell phones, we do a lot of callbacks. This is 101 of how to do a poll. But in the months and years to come, that is a very expensive technology. We're only doing national polls, you know, maybe every month. that will become even more expensive. And when we want to get in the swing states in 2020, and especially 2022 and 2024, we're continuously trying to find new ways within the polling community to accurately represent the electorate while cutting down on costs so we can get as many polls as possible. Right. And most people don't know this, but it comes right out of your paycheck. Right. That's true. It, it, that's 100 percent true. It, yeah. It's actually true. You know, this is part of the reason why I eat so much fast food. Is It's not because <laughs> I just enjoy the taste. It's because it's polling is expensive. Polling is expensive <laughs> and my paycheck has been diminishing by the hour. But it's really been worth it when you think about it for the greater good, Harry. Absolutely. It, absolutely. Because otherwise, how would everyone? know about the great deal at Wendy's, such as the 4 for 4. <laughs> the 4 for 4. Okay, that's a great question, Mason. Thank you. If you have questions like that, uh, please send them to us. You can tweet us by using the hashtag TheForecast, uh, or just find us on uh, Twitter and send them to us directly. We read every single tweet, and if you ever checked Harry's uh, Twitter feed, which is uh, Forecaster Enton, he literally responds to every single person who tweets him, right? Some, some I respond to an unhealthy 75% percentage. More of, than you probably should. Putting the social in social media. Yes. Yes. I have no life otherwise. <laughs> All right. Let's uh, talk now about some of these races. We've got some great races to talk about. We're going to hang out in the Midwest for most of the episode. We're going to start in Iowa's first because we're so close to 2020. We might as well start talking about Iowa, right? Absolutely. <laughs> I was just there with Cory Booker a That's few right. weeks ago. So you've so been our there. Listeners Woo! Know. Yes. The incumbent Rod Blum is running against uh, the Democrat Abby Finkenauer. Uh, Blum is a software entrepreneur uh, from Dubuque. I love that we're getting a Dubuque reference in the podcast this week. He calls himself a Tea Party Republican. 
Uh, Finknauer is uh, currently a state representative. She's young. At the age of 29, she has the chance to be one of the first women under 30 elected to Congress. There's another person with that distinction you may have heard of. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez uh, from New York City. Who's that? And she's uh, <laughs> probably easily going to win election uh, after her shocking primary win. This district backed uh, Obama twice by double digits, but then it's one of these districts that swung back uh, and, and elected President Trump by four points in 2016. Trade, a huge factor in Iowa. A recent study estimating that Iowa farmers could lose up to $2.2 billion from a trade war there. And our colleague Dan Merica did a really great kind of unpacking of how trade is impacting farmers in particular in places like Iowa. So, uh, Harry, break this down for us. Where are we uh, in Iowa 1? Yeah, so I think that if Democrats are going to take back the House, this is a district that they are almost certainly going to need to win. So our forecast right now has Finkenauer winning by six points. And I should say that's actually among some of the more pessimistic forecasts for her. Uh, the New York Times has a poll in the field right now, so it'll be interesting to see whether or not that changes from their last poll, which had Finkenauer up double digits. You know, you mentioned the Trump-Obama split that went on there. The weighted average partisanship of the district that takes into account a slew of elections is even. Um, but this is not the type of district where I think if you were to talk about, you know, at the beginning of this year, the beginning of this cycle, where the Democrats' path was, this doesn't really match it, right? It's more rural than average at 37 percent. It's less educated than the average district in the country, uh, just 25 percent of a college degree there. Um, but I think that this is part of a larger pattern, which is one of the reasons I love this district. It's part of a larger pattern in the Midwest of districts and states that went for Donald Trump coming back into the Democratic fold in 2018. That's right. I mean, we've talked so much about these Hillary Clinton districts that are held currently by Republicans. And that was, I think, what you're talking about here, Harry. That was our focus early on. The Obama-Trump districts, I think, are so interesting. Democrats who I've been speaking to have been pointing to these districts as sort of the key to election night to really focus on these districts, and you'll learn a lot about what's going to happen. And you have to imagine that 2020 candidates are thinking about that as well, right? If there are Obama-Trump districts that continue to stay in Republican hands or go the other way, does that foreshadow 2020 as well? Yeah, and I would point out that this isn't the only district in the state of Iowa that has this kind of, you know, beautiful Obama to Trump. Iowa's mm -hmm. third district, where Sidney Axney looks at this point to be a favorite, she is a favorite in our forecast, is favored to pick up that seat for the Democrats. So, you know, as Rebecca was saying, you're going to see districts in Iowa, districts in Kansas, districts in Illinois, mm -hmm. all these districts in the Midwest. I wouldn't be shocked if a third to half of the Democratic pickups on the March of 23 occur in the Midwest. Which is one of the reasons we're talking so much about the Midwest today. Absolutely. Did you want to make one more point on that, Rebecca? Yes. So you mentioned trade. You mentioned the president's trade war tariffs, et cetera, and how this is playing in a district like this one. What I think is interesting is that based on what I've heard from people on the ground in some districts like this, and as well as some national strategists uh, for Republicans and Democrats, is that you might have something of a delay when it comes to voters picking up on the impacts of the trade war. And in fact, uh, some of the biggest issues in a district like this one are going to be health care still on the Democratic side, like we're seeing across the country, Republicans focusing on taxes and also on immigration. And the trade war is sort of a second tier issue mm. uh, still, even in these very That's rural districts. I mean, poll after poll still tells us that health care is a defining issue. Immigration is still super important to these candidates, uh, even though trade might be something that directly impacts their bottom line. Right, they but they're not be, feeling it yet. Yeah, I mean, mm -hmm. a lot of these farmers are just beginning to harvest. They haven't begun selling their crops for this year, so right. that's when they're really going to start feeling it's the impact of the tariffs. Yeah.
Right. Well, it should. Harry loves corn. I do love corn. I love corn. I love corny. So it works for me perfectly. <laughs> it's a win-win. All right. Let's move uh, further along in the Midwest. We're going to go to Illinois' 6th District. The incumbent there, the Republican Peter Roskam, uh, facing off against Democrat Sean Kasten. This is a suburban district. This is well-educated, mm-hmm. typically votes Republican, but voted for Clinton in 2016. Kasten, a scientist. He is a clean energy businessman. Roskam is somebody you've probably seen before. He's uh, will spend quite a bit of time on the cable news networks uh, answering questions. Uh, he's a former lawyer. He voted for the tax reform bill, which Rebecca was talking about earlier. And he also voted to repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act. He did have a bit more money going into the summer. Uh, in fact, a four to one lead over his opponent uh, in cash on hand. Break this one down for us, Harry. Yeah, I mean, if we were talking before about Iowa one being one of these districts that was an Obama-Trump district and then flipping back to the Democrats. This is the exact opposite. Of that. <laughs> this is not a rural district. As you said, it's a mostly suburban district. I believe only, I think it was only 1% of Illinois 6 is rural as defined by the census. But Peter Roskam is definitely in trouble. Our forecast has him losing by a point. A New York Times poll that came out over the last weekend had him losing by a point. If you were to look at the race ratings, you know, put out by CNN, Cook, Inside Election, so on and so forth, the average there is actually lean Democratic, so a flip to the Democrats. Um, and it is a very very, very well-educated district, right? If we were to talk about the types of districts at the beginning of this cycle that we thought had a pretty good shot of flipping towards the Democrats, this is one of them. 51% of those adults ages 25 and older have at least a college degree. And here's the topper for you. Trump's approval rating in the district, just 41%. And this is one of the districts where we're really seeing that pronounced gender gap because we're talking about white college-educated women, mothers. Uh, These are the people who are really reacting in a very negative way to Donald Trump stylistically and also on policy. And, you know, the Democratic candidate, Sean Kasten, has picked up on that. His campaign uh, did a lot of messaging around the Kavanaugh confirmation Mm -hmm. process, even though it's a House seat, even though uh, Peter Roskam or Sean Kasten would have never had any sort of vote or say on Kavanaugh, but they recognized the Democrats in this district, what a potent issue this was for women, suburban women voters, uh, and they're going to be one of the crucial demographics in this race. And don't you think that Roskam is this perfect example of a Republican who doesn't necessarily embrace Donald Trump uh, personally? He's not somebody that's necessarily out there defending him on every turn. I mean, he's not a Tea Party guy. He's not wearing a MAGA hat. He's very much like a Chamber of Commerce Republican. But yet, as we pointed out here, on all the key things where Trump needed a Republican vote, Peter Roskam was there to cast that vote with Donald Trump. So I, I, I've Paid always... for by the DCCC. Exactly. <laughs> but, but I mean, I, I, you know, I, I think that's such an important point because you have someone like Roskam, who obviously has a ton of money, and knows that district well, has been around there for a long time, are suburban women in particular able mm-hmm. to separate Peter Roskam from Donald Trump. They know that he is not Donald Trump by any stretch of the imagination, but is Donald Trump's shadow just looming too large in a race like this? I mean, look at the governor of this state, Bruce Rauner, you know, who was elected back in 2014, much more of a moderate type of guy. And what do you see? You see Bruce Rauner down double digits in the polls in his reelection campaign. And not only that, but he now feels the need to go out to a Donald Trump rally wearing a leather biker jacket, <laughs> yeah, right, which right, fit right. him about as well as church fits me. So <laughs> I, 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 it's, a, it's a state that is feeling very anti-Trump right now. This is the type of district that's feeling very anti-Trump right now. Mm-hmm. And Peter Roskam is just 
in the wrong error for this seat. Yeah. Right. I feel like there's so many Republicans that are up for re-election that are in that in that kind of similar situation where they Donald Trump is not their candidate. But you cannot escape the fact that you both have R's behind your names. Absolutely. And this is not a district, by the way, where Roskam was caught flat-footed, where he was surprised that he was going to have a competitive re-election. He knew he was prepared. He raised a lot of money. Mm -hmm. Nevertheless, the shadow of Trump. Because, you know, there are a lot of uh, Republicans like Peter Roskam that just decided to call it a career, right? You know, that just decided it wasn't worth this They saw the writing on the wall. And just decided to retire. But Mm -hmm. Roskam's decided to try and, and see if he can pull out the win. So we'll see what will happen on election night. All right. Now let's go to Ohio's 12 maybe one of the most interesting uh, districts in the country. I was there for the special election uh, back, uh, when was it? As was I. We were both both there. there. That's right. That's right. We covered that together. Um, I was the early morning shift and you were the late night shift, as I recall. That's right. Uh, You handed off to one another. Exactly. We've always been a team, Rebecca and I. Yes. Um, uh, The Republican Troy Balderson uh, taking on the Democrat Danny O'Connor. This was once a John Boehner seat in, uh, or was it John Casey's? T-Berry. But T-Berry, T-Berry and then it was John Kasich. But it was John Kasich's seat way back when. Right, right, yes. exactly. That's what I meant. Uh, Balderson edged out uh, a victory on uh, the special election uh, that just had a ton of uh, money spent, so much attention given to it. I was uh, Rebecca and I were not the only cable news reporters that were in uh, the Columbus area that week. This is going to be a rematch. It was such a fascinating race at the time because they knew that no matter who won. Um, that they were going to be running again. This was in August. Uh, it was too close to call for three weeks before Balderson ended up uh, winning by less than 2,000 votes. Who's got the edge this time around, Harry? Do you, is it Balderson still in the driver's seat? Yeah, you know, I think, again, it depends on the forecast. Ours has kind of gone a little back and forth. Right now, on the website, any event, we have Balderson favored by about two points. Okay. Um, which is basically a repeat of what occurred just a few months ago. Now, here's an interesting little fact for you. I, you have to go back all the way to the 1993 to 1994 cycle to have one person win the special, then to have a repeat of that special in the general, mm-hmm. and have the guy who won in the special not win in the regular. Right. So that's the mm-hmm. type of uphill battle that Danny O'Connor is facing. But again, it's, it's close, and this is, as we noted at the time, a well-educated district. Forty percent have a college degree, but it's also a district with a little twist. And it's a bit more rural than the average district, right? These are two trends that have kind of been going against each other. And for Democrats, they've been doing better among college-educated voters, but they've also been doing worse in rural areas. And so this district kind of splits that cat two ways. And we should point out that this is an overwhelmingly Republican district. The weighted average partisanship is plus 17 Republican, and Trump won it by 11. So if the Democrats do, in fact, win here, this is the type of district you'd expect them to win when they do very, very well on election I night. remember uh, on the special election, John Kasich uh, lamenting the fact that Democrats should not be competitive at all in, in a district like this. Right. I mean, it's been a Republican district for decades, uh, almost consecutively. Uh, and yet, to your point, Harry, about the really unique demographics of this district, Donald Trump was able to come there uh, in the days before the special election mm-hmm. and actually have a rally, uh, which Republicans viewed as a net positive. He was a positive force in this district. And you are not going to see Donald Trump in Peter Roskam's district. You're not going to see him in Carlos Corbello's district. But this was a district where he was actually able to do some good. And Mm -hmm. so I think that shows this is not your average suburban district in this election cycle. And And I wonder, too, comparing the special election to the general election. I remember being there at the time 
it was in August. There were still people trying to fit in last-minute summer vacations before school started back up. What's a vacation? <laughs> there be, people actually go on those, uh, Harry. Uh, it just seems as though, uh, and Harry, you're the expert on this, it might be difficult to really draw too many conclusions out of what happened in the special election mm-hmm. comparatively to the, the general election, just because the makeup of the electorate is probably going to be so much different, right? Yeah, I, I think the makeup will be different. One thing to note is that turnout in Ohio will be driven at least partially by a very competitive governor's race right, this right. time around, mm-hmm. right? You have Mike DeWine yes. and Rich Cordry going up against um, each other. So this is not going to be some special election that's occurring on its own when people are more interested in going on vacation mm-hmm. than perhaps actually voting. But I think that the general point being that you did see high turnout for that special. I think you'll see higher turnout now. I'm not sure which side that necessarily favors, um, but I will say that, again, that this is one of those weirdo districts whereby if for whatever reason you get more turnout um, in the suburbs of Columbus than you did in the special, then that could bode very, very well for Danny O'Connor in a way that we didn't actually see in the special versus if, let's say, now more Republicans in the outlying exurban areas want to turn out because they want to vote for Mike DeWine, then that could turn this race completely another way. And when you have races that are so close, like this special election was, then small differences in turnout could make large differences in the overall result. Mm-hmm. All right, so that'll definitely be one to watch on election night, Ohio's 12th, the rematch between Troy Balderson and the Democrat Danny O'Connor. Okay, after the break, we're going to turn to the Senate, and then we're going to go in-depth on a governor's race that's been making headlines lately. That's up next. We are now going to stay in the Midwest, uh, but now move over to the Senate side. If you remember, beginning of the broadcast, uh, Harry's giving Republicans the edge in the Senate. We're going to talk about one of the key races that if Democrats have any hope of holding on to the Senate, they're going to have to win. That's in Indiana, home to Vice President Mike Pence. And that's where the incumbent, the Democrat Joe Donnelly, is facing off against Republican Mike Braun. Braun is a businessman and a politician. He served in the Indiana House of Representatives. He won a a very hotly contested primary there, uh, beating back two uh, sitting members of the House of Representatives. Uh, Donnelly's been crisscrossing the state and his 16-year-old RV. He often mentions the Republicans he's worked on legislation with, including President Trump. He's got a really fascinating ad, if you haven't seen it yet, uh, of, of him chopping wood out in the forest, which is very similar to a Veep ad. Have you seen that? The comparisons made no. between the Donnelly ad and the I Veep ad? This. Oh yeah, I love Veep. Google that. You're gonna. It's actually kind of incredible how similar they are. Uh, the candidates in the outside groups here have spent $36 million in advertisements. A lot of money. That, and that's just from October 1st through Election Day, uh, making it uh, one of the Senate races with the most money spent on ads. Uh, Donnelly would like to hold on to this seat, uh, Harry. Any shot that he's going to be able to do that? So this is an interesting case of if we were playing a game of where would I go against my forecast, this would be one of those seats where I might be tempted to do so. Mm. So right now the forecast has Donnelly winning by three, but there hasn't been a ton of recent polling, certainly nothing that is high quality. So I did an alternative forecast. I'm always looking at different ways to kind of <laughs> slice that apple. Is this, is this for podcast listeners only, this the alternative this, forecast? This, this is a special podcast. Podcast oh. exclusive. That's right. <laughs> um, and 
what essentially I did was, you know, CNN puts out these race ratings, right, along with other organizations like Cook, Inside Election, so on and so forth. I looked at the average rating of that, which is a toss-up. I then looked at races at the end of the campaign since 1992 that were also a toss-up and then controlled for the state's past voting patterns as well as the national environment through the generic ballot. And when we did that, this method of forecasting produces something slightly different, produces a forecast that suggests Mike Braun, the Republican, will win by three points. Mm. Mm. So this gives you an idea of this race is one of those that could be very, very close on election night, whereby, remember, this is a, a seat that Joe Donnelly only won in 2012 because Richard Murdoch was able to defeat Dick Luger right. in the primary, right. the longtime incumbent. I mean, Dick Luger's the type of guy, if you watch the old election night tapes, you know, he's winning back in like 1976. Right, right, right. right. Um, you know, and I believe they pronounce it Richard Lugar back then. <laughs> um, and so this is a much different race where the Republicans got behind Braun. Yes, it was a competitive primary, but Republicans got behind Braun early. There's been a lot of money, as I think we've spoken about, spent against Joe Donnelly. So this is a tough road to haul in a state that is plus 16 Republican and the weighted average partisanship. If Donnelly holds on here, it's probably going to be in part because there's a libertarian candidate on the ballot and he will win with, say, 46 or 47 percent of the vote with the libertarian taking five, six, seven percent. Hmm. Is it possible the libertarian could take that much from the polling? They've I'll, I, you should see some of the advertising that's been floating out there, which is essentially trying to paint the uh, libertarian candidate as the true conservative versus <laughs> Mike Braun not being. Wow. It is Very plausible. Nice. I have seen some polling that could suggest you get five to six, seven percent. But, of course, you should keep in mind that polling tends to overestimate how well third-party candidates do. Right, right. That makes a lot of sense to me, though, what you're saying, Harry, because I, in my mind, I lump this in sort of with the Missouri Senate race. But when I look at Missouri compared to Indiana, I would think that Missouri Democrats have a slightly better chance, generally speaking, because you have not one urban center, but two with Kansas City and St. Louis, where they could draw votes from. In addition to that, Missouri was more recently a swing state and yes. has a history, a recent history of electing Democrats statewide, uh, whereas Indiana, uh, I would think, is generally a more Republican state. So it seems like a tougher climb for Joe Donnelly than it would be for Claire McCaskill. And right now we have Missouri as a true toss up. Well, and I also think that the difference between McCaskill and Donnelly is, you know, even though McCaskill has a moderate streak to a certain extent, she is a bona fide Democrat, right? She supports almost uh, Democratic votes down the line, where Donnelly's trying this weird hybrid of like, yeah, I'm a Democrat, but listen, I can work with President Trump. I'm, you know, I'm, I've got the axe. I'm out in the forest. And, and, and I think we've seen this play out in a bunch of different states where, I mean, it's a base election, right? And how motivated are you if you're a Democratic voter in the state of Indiana, to come out and, and passionately support someone like Joe Donnelly if he's sitting there saying, well, I kind of like President Trump, I'm going to work with him. I, I think there's, a, there's a, a really difficult and narrow path to try and squeak through if you're a Democrat in a state like that, especially, I mean, Claire McCaskill has got a bit more of a lengthy record than Joe Donnelly. Jumping back on the polling thing, if there was a second state where I think my forecast is probably wrong, it'd be Missouri. <laughs> uh, and that we do have as a closer margin, only about a point win for McCaskill. But I remember, I, you know, I was doing my little TV segment with uh, John Berman, and he kind of looked at me when I said McCaskill favored by a point. This is another state where if you look at the race ratings, it, perhaps if we had more public polling, 
we might come to a different conclusion about where this race actually lines up. And if, obviously, if Democrats lose either of these seats, the Senate is long gone. And if they lose both of them, we could be looking at Republicans controlling 53, 54 mm -hmm. seats on the night. And that could be where their long tail good scenario comes into play. Okay, let's move now to the Florida governor's race. I've been covering this race very closely as part of my assignment for CNN. We talked about the impact that Hurricane Michael is having on this race. Uh, today, though, we're going to go a bit more in depth. This is a matchup between Democrat Andrew Gillum, the mayor of Tallahassee, a rising Democratic star. President Obama is going to be there uh, for Gillum later this week. He's running against the Republican Ron DeSantis. He is in many ways a Donald Trump clone. Definitely uh, um, hoping to, to really fire up the Trump base of the party. This is an interesting dynamic because you have the current governor, Rick Scott, who's running for the Senate. We've talked about that race before. So there's no incumbent, even though the incumbent is on the ballot in a different form. Gillum is already the first major party African-American candidate for governor in Florida's history. He'd be the first African-American governor if elected. Race is a huge overtone in this in this uh, particular campaign, which people may not be talking about directly, but there's certainly been a, a lot of conversations about it. Gillum and DeSantis did square off in a fiery headline-making debate uh, during which Gillum addressed the fact that uh, DeSantis was receiving support from a neo-Nazi group that was sending out robocalls uh, to voters in Florida. Now, DeSantis did reject that group's support. And, of course, DeSantis heavily attacking uh, Andrew Gillum's role in an FBI investigation of his uh, former lobbyist uh, friend, uh, which Gillum is caught up in. Gillum uh, maintains that he's not a target of that investigation. President Trump tweeting about that uh, this week, again, with a racial overtone. Harry, I know you don't forecast uh, governor's races. But I put it into my machine. This is, you know, with enough head time. <laughs> again, is this, a, this again, a, a podcast exclusive? This is a, wow. This is a podcast TV exclusive. Um, and I can tell you that according to our forecast, we believe that Andrew Gillum is forecasted to win by five percentage points. That's perhaps a little wider margin than you might expect. Mm. And, of course, there is a margin of error associated with that so mm. that DeSantis still has a shot. But Gillum has led in pretty much every poll since the primary. And I think that there's a lot of people who are surprised at this, if only because there hasn't been a Democratic governor elected in the state of Florida since Walken Lawn Childs back all the way in 1994 when he beat Jeb Bush. Mm -hmm. That's how long it's been. But you know what? The polls right now have him favored. Um, more than that, you know, yeah, Florida is a little bit more to the right than the country as a whole, plus four Republican on the weighted average partisanship. But if you look at the polls, you see that Trump, while perhaps not as underwater as you would expect, given his nationwide approved rating, still isn't very popular in the state. Recent New York Times ball had him one point higher on disapproval than approval rating. And I'll just say this. If Gillum is going to lose... That means that pretty much every poll of this race is going to have to be wrong. Mm -hmm. We've seen that happen before. But Andrew Gillum at this point looks like he's going to be only the third elected African-American governor in this country's history. It's really incredible. It's such an interesting race because you have these two candidates. We talk about races where candidates are trying to play to the center. Mm -hmm. This has been a race where you have really two from complete polar opposites. Yeah, exactly. You could not have two candidates that are more different from each other. And also, I mean, you know, if we're thinking that Gillum is potentially winning this race, he is a huge departure from the Rick Scott era in Florida. So we are watching before our very eyes a state take 
almost a 180 degree turn politically. And again, this is a state also that supported Donald Trump. So right. And and the thing too about Gillum that we can't understate enough is this is he's not just a Democrat. He is a progressive Democrat by any measure. He's called for abolishing ICE mm-hmm. in its current form. He had Bernie Sanders endorsement. Uh, he he is uh, proposed a Medicare for all plan, which would be a combination between Florida and New York and California, where they would uh, uh, create a, a scenario for everyone to get Medicare, which has been roundly panned by DeSantis. And then on the other side of it, DeSantis is not a moderate Republican by any stretch of the imagination. He voted mm-hmm. to repeal the Affordable Care Act. He's strongly in favor of a, a wall on the southern border. And of course, he's fully embraced Donald Trump. I find it interesting, Harry, because I think Americans think of Florida as a swing state. Is it really a swing state or is it just a state where there is an equal number of highly partisan voters on each side? <laughs> I, I, I think, you know, what is the definition of a swing state, right? One could argue that Massachusetts is more of a swing state than Florida <laughs> is because, you know, you elect a Democrat president by more than 20 points and you're going to turn around and elect right. a Republican governor by hmm. upwards of 40 points this year. Right. Um, that's a whole nerdy discussion. But, yeah, look, you got about 40 percent of the electorate that's registered Democrat, about 40 percent of the electorate that's registered Republicans, 20% that are the unaffiliated. Uh, and, you know, we've just seen, if you look at the two last governor's races, right, Rick Scott's won by a point both times. he never gotten over 50%, right? right? You, yeah. you, you, look at, you look at the presidential races, Obama won by a point, Trump won by a point. Yeah. It's a very, very inelastic electorate, at least over the last few election cycles. But I want to step back and emphasize what a major election this could be potentially for African-Americans in the state of Florida. It's mm-hmm. not just about electing Andrew Gillum. It's also about Amendment 4. That's an amendment that will be voted upon that needs 60 percent of the vote or more. And that would automatically restore the right to vote for people with prior felony convictions, except those convicted of murder or, or felony sexual yeah, non-violent offense. Offense. Right, nonviolent. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Florida is has some of the most restricted voting rights for ex-felons, and that primarily primarily keeps African-American men from voting in elections. This is something that we knew all the way back to the 2000 race, um, Gore versus Bush, and something that Rick Scott, after Charlie Crist, who's now a Democrat but was the Republican right. governor, had very much pulled back those restrictions, had reinforced them. This Amendment 4 could, in fact, allow a lot more African-Americans in the electorate to vote. Well, no matter what, Amendment 4 would open the floodgates in that respect. Another interesting side note to Florida is that every cabinet member, essentially, is also elected statewide. And they have a clemency committee, they call it. And I was at a rally with Joe Biden where one of the guys running for one of the statewide cabinet officials talked about who would be on that clemency committee. And even if Amendment 4 doesn't meet that 60 percent threshold, if they elect those four Democrats to the clemency committee, they were going to allow a lot more people to have their rights restored. Uh, Let me just add one last thing, and that is that there's also a number of Supreme Court positions that will be open post-election in Florida. These are people who are mostly remnants from the Lord and Childs, that's how long they've been on the court for. And whoever wins this election could uh, flip sway the Florida Supreme Court for generations to come. So the huge implications for 2020 uh, beyond just who gets elected uh, on election night. All right, great uh, conversation. It is now time for trivia. I believe Rebecca's won once. I've won once. So this is like, I feel like this is the big tiebreaker ahead of the uh, election night. So what do you got for us? I've got a few questions. This one is from the category for election nerds. That sounds like us. I was going to say. So here we go. We're going to start off, and if we don't get it right, we'll have a tiebreaker, maybe a tiebreaker after that. We'll find out. Okay. The only 2016 Republican caucus or primary in which neither, repeat, neither Ted Cruz 
nor Donald Trump finished in the top two was held in this place. Read me the question one more time. The only 2016 Republican caucus or primary in which neither Ted Cruz nor Donald Trump finished in the top two. Where was that held? Uh, Ohio? That was my guess. Yo, you're both wrong. No, because at that point... Was it Utah? No. Ohio, I guess uh, by Ohio, uh, Cruz and Trump were the only ones left, right? Because it was just Cruz. No, no remember, Kasich had his confetti. Well, that's what I'm saying. Kasich oh, but that won. was the second place confetti. Yeah. Well, that, no, that was the first place. Remember, the Kasich question won Ohio. finished in the top, top two. two. Because the Cruz, and, oh. Cruz and Trump were the only ones left at that point. Right. So, yeah. Listening skills. Yeah. So Kasich mm-hmm. won that. Trump came in second. Utah, uh, Cruz won that. And I believe Trump came in second. Is it Virginia? New. No. You're, not, you, you're thinking too big. So it's a small state. I never said it was a state, did I? Oh, you did not say it was a state. Puerto Rico? No. <laughs> I was, can you just give us the answer? It was the District of Columbia, Washington, oh, D.C. Oh, Washington, D.C. Okay, let's let's try this one on for size. I, I, feel, like you, I feel like you kind of... That was a trick question. That was a little bit of a trick question, yeah, wasn't okay. it? Yeah, <laughs> okay. Sure, whatever you Maybe it was my fault for not listening to the question. The state with the longest current streak of not electing Republican to the Senate. Hmm. It was through 2014 West Virginia, but that's not the case anymore because West Virginia obviously elected Shelley Moore Capito. So New York elected Chuck Schumer to beat Al D'Amato. That would have been 98. Is there someone before that? I would say California. I'm trying to think who was the last. I mean, Barbara Boxer and Feinstein have been around That's forever. True. That's a good. Pete Wilson was before that. He was in the Senate? Mm-hmm. Yeah. He was elected governor. Feinstein won that seat in the special. Yeah, I need to. So it's not New York or California? Is that what you're telling us? I'm not telling you anything. Yeah, I'm going to say New York. I'm going to say New York. I'll say California. You're both wrong. <laughs> the answer is Hawaii. Oh, Hawaii. Hawaii. And since you're both miserable failures, we can move on to credits now. Thank you. <laughs> you, don't want to do, you don't want to put us through this anymore. Oh, boy. Election nerds, my behind. I guess that what the trivia segment teaches us is that there are levels of political nerddom. Right. And we're never going to reach I'm more of level. a recent nerd. Yes. <laughs> All right. When was the last time? Has Hawaii ever elected a Republican senator? Yeah, they did. I want to say it was way back in the day in like the but you 60s don't know, or the 70s. You don't know specifically. So you're I guess, maybe not as big a nerd as we thought. Okay, that's fine. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right, Harry, thank you for that. Uh, and that does it for us today. Thank you so much for listening. Okay, of course, please, if we haven't asked you to do this already, do it now. Subscribe, rate, and review. If you like what you heard here today, just hit subscribe. You can do it on Apple, Stitcher. Whatever your favorite podcast app is, they have that subscribe option, so please do it. And then, while you're there, leave us a rating or review. We prefer five out of five. No, no, no. We only want five out of five. None of this four out of five stuff. And you better leave that review. Otherwise, I'm coming to your house, and you're going to have KFC instead of Popeye's. Go ahead. All right. Thank you. Uh, And also, that is going to help other listeners find our show. And the other big thing we need you to do is kind of, you know, kind of spread the word. You know, word of mouth. Go on Twitter. Let people know you enjoy the forecast. Right. Because you don't want to be the friend who let your friends get left behind 
that not only this election cycle, but for the 2020 cycle, there's exactly. going to be so many months of great analysis. Get ahead of the game is what we're saying. Absolutely. And I, I always find people get really, really into elections as we get closer. Now's the time. If somebody's not listened before, let them know about the podcast. Tell us on Twitter that you did it, and maybe we'll send you a CNN hat or something like that. You can always find us on Twitter. Uh, that's where you can send your feedback or questions. I'm Ryan Nobles with one N. Rebecca, what's your handle? Rebecca G. Berg. G. G as in Gregory. <laughs> yes. Yes, Gregory is my middle name. That's right. <laughs> and I'm at Forecaster Renton. There's no syllable. There's no joke There's here. No There's joke no joke there. there. Yeah. I, 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 unless, of course, you read some of the forecast. And this <laughs> is The Forecast with Harry Anton. Special thanks to our producers, Amy Eason and Emma Soslowski. We will see you right back here next time. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.